Hello, and welcome to episode 130 of The Ethical Life, a place where each week we talk about the intersection of ethics and modern life. I'm Scott Rada, social media manager for Lee Enterprises, and I'm joined as always by Rick Kite, and he's the head of the Ethics Institute at Viterbo University in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Hello, Rick. Hi, Scott. Higher education has been in the news a lot lately, and the news isn't always the kind college administrators are hoping to see. Questions about free speech, the admissions process, and what's being taught in the classroom are all making headlines at campuses across this nation. Rick, we mentioned a lot. You work at a college, and in fact, your entire professional life has been inside academia. Before we talk about some of these individual issues, I was hoping you could first talk about how universities are different today than, well, back in 1980, which I think was the first year you were a student at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. How are things different? Oh, it's just a world of difference right now. You know, what we're going to be talking a lot about this idea of general education. It's often called the core curriculum at universities. That's been one of the main things that's changed a great deal. I was, of course, I'd, I was at Hamlin, which is a was a private liberal arts university. Even at that time, most state universities had a really robust common core, you know, on general education program which made sure that all students that graduated had, you know, a broad background in kind of the humanities, but also like a certain understanding of like how the scientific process works, mathematics, so I did formal reasoning, informal reasoning, communication, but then topics in areas like history, literature, uh, usually philosophy or religious studies, one or the other, or both, depending on the kind of school. Those kinds of courses, that kind of distribution of kind of representative of all these various disciplines, that took up about half of my credits that I took. In your your undergraduate. An undergrad, yeah. And this now has become really unusual. And, And one of the main reasons it's happened is because of the proliferation of professional degrees. So when you have professional degrees like, say, nursing, education, accounting, engineering. There's all kinds of requirements that generally come partly from within the university, but but more importantly, from different kinds of accrediting bodies or certifying bodies outside the university. Like nurses have to pass boards. They have to pass this exam, which means they have to take all these courses that prepare them for taking an exam after they graduate to be certified, say, as a registered nurse. But I, I just want to stop there for a second, though, that, and, and you're saying clearly that that's different than it was back in the 80s when you were in, in school. Well, well, the the difference is that the, the demands of those kinds of bodies, those accrediting bodies, they have increased. They've just incremental, they, they keep adding requirements. Sure. Uh, and then a greater percentage of what the degrees that universities grant are the professional kinds of degrees. And so there's many fewer traditional, um, like history, psychology, uh, sociology, those kinds of degrees in which you get, a, say, a, a degree BA or a BS, um, doesn't qualify you for a profession. It just certifies that you've 
you you have a familiarity with that topic. Those sorts of degrees have have really fallen by the wayside. There's many fewer of them now, and so universities have become these specialized uh, training programs, much more than a general education kind of institution. But just to just to st- stick on the nursing thing for a moment, so if I'm in the hospital and I'm getting pretty uh, direct care from a nurse. I, pr- I probably are. This is not probably top of mind for me, but if it, I would like to think that I would rather have had that nurse had some extra nursing class that maybe helps provide me a little better care that I need versus an art history class that probably is not being helpful to my uh, the caregiving I'm receiving in the hospital. I mean, and and I, that's probably an oversimplistic way to look at it, but in some ways, I suppose that is why these again, nursing or whatever profession has stacked up these uh, requirements in hopes that it does provide better people coming into these professions, right? Absolutely. That's the justification for it. And I think it's sound. What has happened is within all the various professions, you know, over time, what you do is you identify, well, there's these shortcomings, we need more preparation in this area or this area and so forth. And so you say, we're going to add this to our set of qualifications that we expect from graduates coming out of college. So and I would imagine some of that, and, and whether it's nursing or other things, not only comes from these accrediting boards, but from the industry that they are feeding into, right? The hospitals may have higher expectations or architect firms might have higher expectations. Is that part yeah, of it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So this this has been a gradual professionalization of society. Colleges, universities are the training ground for these professionals. So there's been that pressure. So how do you how do you do that? How do you have, still have somebody graduate in four years, but in order to go into a profession, they need to learn much more? Well, you do it by saying, well, what do we cut out? Well, do they really need two history classes to graduate? Let's say they just need one. So you go from two to one. Do they really need uh, psychology and sociology and anthropology? How about we just require one class in the social sciences and they can pick? Do they, do they really need something in, in um, ethics and uh, art, history of art, for example, or, or logic? Why don't we say one philosophy class or one class in formal reasoning, something like that? And so what you've seen is that or the general education part has kept shrinking. This has really changed the very idea of what a university is for. Is it to prepare somebody to be generally well-versed in kind of in the culture and the history and kind of what our place as human beings is within a society so that we can perform our obligations as citizens to the best of our abilities? Or is it to prepare every individual for their particular profession. And, and, and that's yeah. been the biggest, I'll just go back to 1980, that's been the biggest change is when I was there, it was a time of transformation from this old idea of universities as a place for for giving you a sense of being a cultured person, which means the, the, the ability to assume these responsibilities as a citizen to carry on the passing along of civilization it went from that to let's prepare you to be like a, a 
a highly effective professional in some area. And you mentioned, and I want you to dig into this a bit more, but there's this push sometimes at the state, often at the state level, for uh, sort of re-embracing of this general education at colleges. There's a lot of threads as to what's driving this. Some of it, what you said, I think, that is to make uh, these students come out as more well-rounded young adults with a broader base of, of, of knowledge. Also, though, I think there is some uh, recognition that even the students who do focus more on the humanities are coming out with a, uh, a different experience than they would have uh, back in the 1980s or even maybe the 1990s. A number of things happened. So at, at the time that I was in graduate school in the like late 80s and early 90s, there was a really, really strong push for, for affirmative action at the universities because the faculty were, were way overrepresented by, by white males. And so how do we- You're talking affirmative action on faculty, not on students at this point. Not on students, on yeah, faculty. Yeah. yeah. So like the, the student body was becoming more diverse, but the faculty were not. Well, how do you do that? If you're a university and you want to have, say, more both minority and, and women's representation among the faculty, it's, it's harder to do that in some of these professional programs where you still have these really, really strict and kind of objective qualifications for how you meet the demands. But you can take something like, say, my field like philosophy and say, okay, how do we hire more women in philosophy? Well, let's start offering courses in feminist philosophy because the people most likely to be teaching those programs are women. We don't have to announce that we're only going to be hiring women. We can just create a program in, in feminism, and then um, all the applicants are going to be women, and we increase our representation of women. And so, so what happened in the humanities is all these kinds of new study programs were created really as a, as a way to increase representation of both women and minorities within the within the faculty ranks without saying they're doing an affirmative action program this this fit in with a general kind of motive to have more diversity within the faculty and and i think it was really well intentioned the problem is that it really changed the character of what we think of as the humanities um, in ways that it didn't really affect the character of the professional programs at all. Well, and, and maybe you could talk about that more because it, it sounds like the humanities were more broadly defined, I guess. Yeah, I think they were because while they weren't defined by meeting these kinds of objective standards on, on tests, on, like there wasn't a list of say, facts or skills you had to have. The humanities have always been defined more as, like, how do we carry on a conversation with the past? And so it's a knowledge of a tradition, and how do you become familiar with that tradition, kind of conversant in the, in the language and the practices of that tradition, and then how do you carry it on, pass it on? It's much harder to define when you're outside of the tradition, you can define it from inside. It's harder to define by any set of standards on the outside. That made these kinds of disciplines uh, really easy to modify for meeting other kinds of aims, like the 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 aim, the social aim of diversity. 
you know, it, th there's two things that sort of occur to me about this is that one, part of the reason you describe where there's been a, a professionalization of some of these disciplines and, and we think you've described that well. However, if there was a huge amount of demand still for incoming students who wanted to get English degrees or history degrees or some of the basic liberal arts degrees, my sense is that schools would really be bending over backwards to compete for those students and, and provide robust programming that uh, captures them because like like a business, the you know colleges are very competitive, especially in trying to get the best students. In most cases, however, that's not happening, right? That in most cases, students are turning away more from these programs and these uh, disciplines than than even twenty years earlier. Am, am I right about that? No, you're absolutely right. Um, and this is part of kind of, I would say, the increased professionalization of society. Two things have happened. One is that we have many more jobs in really specialized areas that require require specialized training even to get your foot in the door. Whereas in the past, there was there's a lot of jobs available that required some kind of general education. You ne needed to know to be able to communicate well, to be able to read and write and talk to others. And you had to have a certain kind of background information, but then you really got the specialized training once you got into the profession. There's many more professions now where you have to have some kind of specialized knowledge just to start out in the job. So when so universities prepare for that, right? And so, and students know that. So there's a, there's a lot of pressure for students to declare a major even before they step foot on campus. That didn't used to be the case. It used, you know, you used to be able to take a year or two of general education classes. And during that time, you kind of figure out, what do I really want to do? That's been white, kind of one kind of pressure. And this isn't a change just in the university. This is society overall. We, we expect more training to enter into the professions because I think the professions are frankly more demanding. We're getting better at providing all kinds of, all kinds of things. But the other is then universities at the same time as they've, they've really invested heavily in providing training and all these different kinds of programs, they become much more expensive. That's one reason. There are other reasons too. Then uh, you can't afford to come out of college with say, say fifty to a hundred thousand dollars in student loans without preparation to enter into a high-paying profession, so that you can pay back those student loans. So that's the other. That's the other reason general education has really fallen off. When I was talking to a professor friend of mine about this and how. There are some people in academia who really want to refocus on sort of traditional general education, and, and and we'll link to an example of that in the show notes. But there was a commentary um, about uh, by Peter Berkowitz that ran in, in in the Tennessee Star that really outlined why you know civic education and liberal education are are tremendously important. My friend, however, who's the professor, said that in many cases for that to be successful, that you'll have to have high, incoming freshmen at a starting at a higher place than many of them start now. And he his position, I think, is that high schools aren't doing 
well, in a lot of cases, nearly enough to prepare students for college. Do you, especially if this is a more broadly based uh, general education focus, do you agree with that? Um, absolutely. So, you know, we started out, you asked me, how are things different than 1980 when I was a student at Hamlin? I took a course my freshman year, a philosophy course, because I I didn't know really what philosophy was. I came from a small town in the Midwest, and you know, I'd never studied philosophy, but I thought it sounded really interesting. So I took a course in the philosophy of art, went to the bookstore before classes started, and I had a stack of nine books for that one course. Mm. And they included things like Immanuel Kant's Critique of Judgment. This is impossibly difficult, really dense text of about, you know, three, four hundred pages. And that you were expected to read. Yeah. And not only expected to read, and like we signed up on the first day for three books that we were going to read and write a paper on and read to the class and do this before we had any lecture, it, it, you know, any kind, you know, so just read it, understand it in your own, write something, and then present it to the class. It was really challenging, and I found it also tremendously rewarding. I absolutely would not be able to get my students to do anything like that today. The amount of reading that we require in, in most colleges and universities is way down, and this, this is what makes something like this General Education Act proposal so unrealistic. It's it's modeled more or less after the great books programs that are that are still being taught in places like University of Chicago and Columbia. But that's a really kind of highly selective group of students that go to those places that really want to be challenged in that way. I don't I don't think students in general have the preparation to do first of all that amount of reading and that level of kind of in depth reading from the time they get onto campus. I don't think a widespread great books curriculum is even possible today. Just to move on to a couple other uh, topics in the world of higher ed before we close here, um, there was a piece that caught your eye from the Washington Post uh, earlier this month that said, a recent study shows that, that shows teachers are limiting lessons on political and social issues. I think, and again, it varies from place to place and state to state, but there are some states, especially if you work for a state uh, university, that are looking or taking a more uh, critical eye at what's being taught, especially around social issues, political issues in the classroom. Do you think that sort of dialing back on some of these topics is a good thing, or is this just meddling uh from coming from the wrong place. When I looked at that that survey, um, this is about K twelve teachers and yeah. mostly high school That's teachers. A good point. Right? Thank you for yeah. In many of them, especially in conservative states, and even where no restrictions have been passed, right on on content in the classrooms, but if they're in more conservative areas, they tend to avoid controversial topics because they're afraid of the parents' reaction and lack of support from administrators if parents complain about what's taught in the classroom. And I think that's, in, in many ways, really unfortunate because what happens when you don't talk about things that are actually controversial in our society? Now let's talk about something like transgender identities, like is like really controversial right now in society. Mm -hmm. Kids are talking about this, right? 
So if we say we're not going to talk about it in our classroom, that means they talk about it on their, on their own. You know, what one of the things we want in the classroom is to help them get clarity in how to talk about controversial things. The only way to do that is to talk about the controversial things. So but, but is, I, but is, is, is leading a classroom discussion about a topic, to me, sounds different than having the person, the teacher, in this case, leading that discussion, sharing quite clearly his or her opinion about that topic. Yeah. And that is incredibly different. And I think this is, in a way, part of the motivation for this reform of the general education curriculum is that instead of having a lot of specialized courses where you have faculty members teaching an agenda, like this, these are the opinions you should hold about all these controversial things, why don't we have classes, say, in logic where we teach some reasoning skills so that we have a better ability to to engage with one another uh, in disagreements without shouting. I used to teach classes all the time when I was hired. The first like first three universities that I taught at, I was expected to teach logic, and a lot of it was informal reasoning. That what what makes a good argument? How do you how do you present premises and a conclusion? How do you avoid fallacies? How do you identify what a fallacy is? These were highly popular classes, and so we looked at reasoning, but then we also would give examples of both good and bad arguments on a lot of controversial things. But we were teaching reasoning skills. Those sorts of classes have pretty much been abandoned now. You can still find them, but they're not required in very many universities anymore. Which is to have, is as you say that, of course, I think about all the arguments that percolate every minute of the day on social media and we can some in some ways you could argue we we need those skills now more than ever before. It's so frustrating because it's um, when I look at social media, I just I just go down the list. I think here's fallacy, 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 fallacy. You and when fallacies get repeated over and over, they become normalized, and so people no longer recognize them as fraudulent ways of thinking, right? They just become acceptable ways of reasoning. They can become habits of thought. Um, and so I think one of the things we talked about a while ago is this huge rise in cognitive distortions um, over the past 20 years. Um, and this is around the world. Cognitive distortions are just fallacies. They're widespread fallacies that become habits of thought. And so I think we ought to be teaching classes in which we help students reason more clearly because that helps us deliberate more effectively without just shouting at each other. Don't we want nurses yeah. who are not just good at their technical skills, but are also good at talking to their patients and to one another? And, and, and there's a lot of controversial things that happen at hospitals. Well, I, I remember in talking with my physician a couple of years ago when the at the height of the vaccine debate, and, you know, I, I've been very clear that I'm, I'm pro-vaccine. I know you are as well. But she was saying that she just said, you would have believed all the conversations I've had to have with some of my patients explaining to them just why what they think they know is completely wrong. And again, that's something that you probably don't go in to being a physician to. Uh, that's not the top of mind reason you go in, but in a case like a global pandemic, it becomes pretty important. Uh, absolutely. 
I firmly believe that we do need a kind of a reform of education. <clears throat> I don't think it should happen just at the university level, though, um, because I think I think kind of acculturation in proper habits of thought need to start at a fairly early age. When you get to the university, you can dive deeper into them, but you can't begin there because you can develop all kinds of bad habits um, and then get to the universities and have them corrected with a course or two. We need we need certain habits of thought being taught from a fairly early age and all the way all the way through K twelve school, um, and so I think we need a reform of that kind of curriculum. But then we also need the other things that we want to do with the general education, and that is, what is the historical context for who we are as a people? Now, this is also very controversial. Like, do we teach courses in Western civilization and kind of history of Western ideas, Western political thought, for example? I think we, we absolutely ought to. Like, why, why are ideas like freedom and equality important? And where do they come from? Like, they didn't just appear magically. They have a history to them. We, have, we ought to be able to teach that history because then you can teach also critiques of those ideas. Um, and it seems to me right now we're teaching critiques of those ideas without any historical context. And, and that becomes really dangerous. So how do, we, how do we carry on any kind of a culture without historical context? Before we close on this topic, I wanted to uh, point out, which I thought was a, a really good column in the New York Times Magazine by Stephen L. Carter. He is a law professor at Yale University. And the headline is, College is All About Curiosity, and That Requires Free Speech. And he goes on to say, the true learning can only happen on campuses where academic freedom is paramount within and outside the classroom. And again, there's been lots of uh, talk, especially over the past year or so, about free speech on campus. That was even uh, a topic that uh, we highlighted in our year in preview show, well, not much more than a couple months ago. Uh, do, do you Are you optimistic that this is going to uh, get better in the near term, or do you sort of see these uh, issues uh, lasting for quite a while? And I guess maybe finally... Do you think a more broadly based educational uh, approach might help uh, correct some of this? I, I think a more broadly based educational approach could correct some of this, um, and yet I I don't see how that's going to happen. This this idea that's being proposed, this General Education Act, uh, which is legislation to radically transform how how the humanities and history and government civics, those sorts of things are taught in public universities, just been introduced in Utah. A number of other states are considering it. I don't think that has a chance of working because it's it's trying to force a political solution onto a cultural problem. And I've talked a lot about that in, in various columns and so forth. For cultural problems, you need cultural solutions. So we need a really much more broad-based effort to say, um, let's be more tolerant and questioning, um, open-minded with one another, and and let's raise our children in this way. Let's raise our children in so they, they grow up participating in the kinds of organizations in which they have experience 
with deliberation. And I got that, in, for example, in my experiences with 4-H and scouting, in which we would elect officers and we would talk about like what we are going to do for a project in the summer. Are we going to clean up roadsides or are we going to, you know, work on a park? You know, like what are we going to do? And we'd have to argue it out and talk about it. It's, it was frustrating and seemed kind of pointless sometimes, but it was it was all this introduction and in what it means to be participate in a democracy in which you have to come to agreement on something. And and we had to use the Roberts Rules of Order, which like, seemed really odd, you know, couldn't figure mm-hmm. out, like, what are they for? Why do you have to make a motion and second it? And all that stuff. However, it turns out that all of that, all those produce kinds of habits which turn out to be really important later on because then you figure out like, well, why is it really important, like say at a city council meeting, that you follow some kind of process so the whole thing doesn't devolve just into shouting where where passions run really high? Well, that's that's why you have something like Robert's Rules of Order to stop that from happening. You can't teach children how to be participants in a democracy just by like once they get to be freshman or sophomore in college, having a course on U.S. government, like they, if they've had no experience with what being a member of a deliberative body is like, they have no context for studying that sort of thing. Um, and so that's why I say it can't be just a political solution like requiring these courses be taught at public universities. We have to have a cultural shift in saying, if we want really responsible citizenship, uh, we don't want, you know, like, highly dysfunctional Congress that can't even come together to discuss an important issue like immigration without just devolving into a shouting match, then we have to raise our children to be part of deliberative bodies in which they don't shout at one another, in which they actually have to make decisions and learn to reason together, and we raise our children in that way. So I think the aim of this idea of reforming general education is a good idea, but I think it it starts way too late. It has to start early on. We end each show by tackling an ethical dilemma. Rick, what is your question for me? Um, Scott, I think we talked about the, the question of tipping before, uh, but it came up again. I was traveling last last week, and I had very different experiences with servers. Um, at one place... It was kind of a traditional, I sat, I sat down and got a meal, so a server took the order, served the food, came back, checked on me a couple of times to see how things were going, refilled my water glass, all that, did a lot of work. Then at the end, I gave I gave a tip, and I think I, I gave a tip of about 20%, which is what I normally do, um, and I felt really good about that. Um, but at another place, I sat down, and there's you have a QR code, and you, you so you take a picture of it on your phone, and you order right from your phone, and then you get a notice when the food is ready, and you go up to the counter, picked up my food, sat back down. Somebody came by and poured, you know, gave me water glass, and then, um, and then when the bill came, I was supposed to pay on my phone, but these options for tips come up, and it was the options were 15, 20, 25 percent, and I'm thinking. In this case, I'm not even sure what the tip is for. Um, and you encounter this all the time. So if you go to a coffee shop, you know, lots of times, you know, there's the tip screen comes up, you know, like, well, like, who are you paying with the tip and what is it going to? And and, and so 
Chipping has become really confusing for me, and I'm just wondering, what do you do? Do you have a do you have a general rule for tipping? Do you give different amounts depending on the level of service, or do you just tip about the same wherever you go? Yeah. So, I, a couple of thoughts I have on this. I mean, one, I mean to answer your question directly, I it does depend on the the quality of service and how much. And, and you know, there I try not to be a pain. But like if you do, if I do have a special request or I, you know, something kind of the, the server goes above and beyond, I'll even be more generous in my tipping. Um, that, that said, just to use your example of this, what I'll call a limited service uh, setting that you had the QR code ordering and, and you had very little uh, interaction with the employees, I'm going to guess that that place had many fewer staffers, at least, uh, on the, on the dining room area because of how it's set up, because they're, they're putting a lot of that, the burden of what normally a waiter or, or a server would do onto the, onto the customer. So am I right that you probably had fewer employees there? Yeah, there was, yeah, everybody was pretty much behind the counter. Yeah. So in that case, how I look at those situations is that the reason that they, there's obviously like, look at McDonald's, for example, and, and I'm sure this place you're describing was at McDonald's, but I don't think McDonald's even allows people to tip, right? I don't think that's an option. And yeah, it's not an option on payment. Yeah. On payment. Yeah. Yeah. If I had to give somebody cash, I don't know if it's allowed or not. Yeah. I don't know either. But, um, but like McDonald's, you sort of go into it saying and that you're making X dollars an hour. And that's just what it is. And the number of hours you work is what it is. And it's a simple math situ- uh, solution. I would imagine the place you were at was not a large chain and that they're probably using that tipping scheme to better pay their em- few employees or fewer employees and allow them to make hopefully as much as someone working at McDonald's might make as just an hourly rate. And so I think a lot of this is just rearranging how we pay for what we, and when we go to restaurants, meaning, I mean, there are some, and they've really not been that successful, although there are some restaurants that say, we don't even really do tipping. And I'm not talking McDonald's, I'm talking, you know, higher end restaurants where it's like all rolled into the price and right. the tip sort of built in. And I think diners and customers don't like that as much because they just feel like they can't, they're not part of the process, sort of. And I think in this country, and again, this varies wildly from place to place when you travel internationally, but I guess for some reason here, we just sort of like funding, if you will, the the salaries of our restaurant servers in odd and inconsistent ways. But I think that's exactly why that limited service restaurant you were at had that 15, 20, 25% option is because that's sort to me, when I see that, I'm just, to me, my first thought is, well, this restaurant owner chooses not to, can't afford to, I don't know what, uh, pay their staff as much as they want. So this is a way to raise that amount. And I, I guess that's, fine, but it just sort of seems like, why not just raise the prices 20% and do away with it altogether? Well, because they would probably 
think, and maybe correctly, that they would lose a lot of customers when they when somebody walked in the next day and every club sandwich and Reuben was 20% more than it was the week before because tipping's built in. I just think it's like a weird sort of economic uh, sleight of hand that we're doing in places like that. I don't have a huge problem with, but I can understand why some people do. Then it becomes more like all these extra fees that are charged at airlines, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, checked bag fees. Yeah, no, that's ex- exactly right. It's exactly what it is. And But but then it creates a kind of resentment that tipping doesn't. I think tipping, lots of times you feel good about it if you say, I'm giving this extra amount of money directly to the server because I've been giving really given really good service. But if it's just this extra fee you have to pay, yeah, kind of disguises the real cost of the food, then you don't have the same feeling about it. Well, I'll tell you, well, here's what bothers me more than that even, and I'll be curious your thoughts is, and I'll pick on Applebee's, which is sort of a traditional dining experience, but you know, not terribly expensive. And let's say you and your wife go to Applebee's and you each order a $15 entree, and maybe you get an appetizer and or dessert and a drink, whatever. And let's say the bill might get to $45, right? And you might tip 10, 20, or 20%, and, and, it, and that is what it is. And, but, and then the next night, you and your wife go to the, one of the nicest restaurants in town where the, entrees may start at 25 or 30 dollars a piece and and you know the drinks are going to cost more if you want a glass of wine you know that's going to cost a lot more than what a glass of wine costs at applebee's and and just down the line and you might walk out of the, the bill may come to your table and that might be well north of a hundred dollars right and then you tip 20 percent off of that my question would be did the server do twice or more than twice as much work at the fine dining restaurant than at Applebee's. I would argue many times, probably not. And I've never worked in a restaurant like that, but my guess is that the Applebee's server, actually, if it's a busier night, might have more tables to balance because they're needing to have that many tables to get a a wage that's appropriate. So that's what's always in the back of my mind been a puzzlement is the percent piece. Is if you go to a... a, I talked to somebody, and and, I mean, I've known people who have worked in restaurants and some high-end restaurants, where if you work at a place where the average ticket's $150 for a table for two, and you work a four or five-hour shift on a busy Friday or Saturday night, you can take home a bunch of money. And again, great, good for them, I'm happy for them. But But I don't know that they're working any harder than the person at Applebee's. I've never liked the percent calculation, especially for lower cost places, like in, for inexpensive meals. And I, and if you're with a, say, say a group of people where you're all having a meal, um, it's not that much work, more work for the server than if you're sitting there alone, still coming back to that table and checking on it and, and, and everything. Um, and yet if they're, you're there alone and you say you're at a breakfast place and it's, you're only spending $8, on breakfast and then a cup yeah. of coffee, you got $10. Well, 20% is two Too bucks. Lost. Yeah. So, yeah. and yet, but it's a lot of work. Um, so I'm, that's, I've never followed the percentage rule at these low cost places where the servers are doing a lot of work. And that's a lot of times these breakfast, lunch places. Yeah, exactly. I've yeah. tried to 
have a, like a minimum amount that I want to give as a tip. Yeah, and and I would imagine that the the argument against this would be is that at the fine dining places you're having people who this is not their first serving job. They have more experience. They they know you know if you want to know what wine goes with uh, a particular dish, you they they sure as heck better have an answer there. Where is it Applebee's? Who knows. But so, yeah, I mean, there is some of that, but I just don't think it's worth like two or three times the amount. And I don't know. I but I don't know how you get around that. There's the percentage thing. Again, this is sort of I want to say uniquely American. I'm sure there's other countries that that uh, have sort of similar things. But this is just sort of such a longstanding part of our restaurant service industry that I just don't see it changing. And the, again, the places that have tried to build this in just doesn't seem to have caught on like I thought it might. I wonder if it's going to start going away with increased automation because yeah. those are the places where it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Like You mean that the, the places that, that again, this is most likely more of the, the national change where you are putting, well, yeah, I was saying more of the work on the customer and, and they're, they're sort of more gimmicks now than trends, but you even see some restaurants that have little robots that bring the food out to the table. And again, I think that's kind of a gimmick now, but who knows what it'll be like five, 10 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have a good trip otherwise? Oh yeah. I had a fantastic trip. Oh, well, and it's good. Yeah, so. And hopefully you have some good food along the way. Um, not really. I, <laughs> I had airport food and then I, I, I was staying in a, a little Airbnb. I, I stopped at a grocery store on on the way, picked up some food, and so I cooked for myself. So I did not eat very well. I'm not a very good cook. <laughs> well, that's why, Rick, we rely on you for ethical advice, not culinary advice. That's right. You wouldn't want me teaching those classes. As a reminder, the Ethical Life podcast is a production of Lee Enterprises. Please subscribe to the Ethical Life wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to check out Rick's column which focuses on many of the topics we talked about earlier in this episode, and that can be found on all the newspaper websites for Rick Kite. I'm Scott Rada. Thank you for joining us. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. Hm. Instacart for the win.